0: Had a John the Baptist's mission of getting people prepared for the coming of the Messiah by looking at giant earth-moving bulldozers and also this cleansing bath that points us to God's salvation in Jesus. All right, let's see if this thing's on. It is. All right, I love this cartoon, Jennifer. Do you recognize this book? All right, good. This is one of my favorites. The crowd turned away from John the Baptist. His great rival, Floyd the Baptizer, had arrived on the scene like a superstar, showing off his new River Jordans. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh, I can't get enough of this cartoon. Oh, man. Let's pray. (laughs) Speak to us, Lord, speak to us in the waiting, in the watching, the hoping, the longing, in the sorrow, the singing, and the rejoicing. Speak to us by your word, God, in these Advent days, and walk with us until the day of your coming. Amen. 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 So, Isaiah chapter 40 is actually going to be quoted, and uh, I was going to read it out and forgot, um, but we'll get it in the text. And Isaiah is prophesying about God's people returning home after a really long and painful exile. And so this, the term of the exile had been served, the penalty had been paid, God is going to come to God's people by means of this highway through the desert, through the wilderness to bring them back home, delivering them from this bondage into freedom, right? And so in order for this to happen, Isaiah said that a few things had to, had to happen. Um, to declared the way of the Lord had to be, this had to be prepared. And so this is Isaiah's language that we're going to hear in, in John Uh, on the lips of John the Baptist also. He said that the crooked roads needed to be made straight, that valleys needed to be lifted up, mountains made low, rough places needed to be made smooth, and the ground needed to be leveled for God's return. And so when I was thinking about this, it sounds like a massive construction project to me, one that would require some pretty heavy-duty bulldozers to get the job done. So recently... We were, uh, I did a wedding at Cielo Farms Winery. Anyone been to that wedding, that venue, is really spectacular. Um, it's off Mulholland Highway. It's really incredible. Uh, about the most incredible and picturesque wedding scene that I've seen, really. It was absolutely beautiful. And the view from the top of this winery, this house, is you know amazing. These incredible rock formations on one side. You can see all the way across the San Fernando Valley on the other side. This is absolutely stunning. And so the reception, the wedding happened, uh, we pulled the wedding off and during the reception, Katie and I, and this is the second week in a row I've done this to myself and I had an accomplice both times. The last week we picked on Eric today was Katie that was like trying to get a better view around this uh, beautiful house that's at the top of the hill. And uh, this, there was a guy in a suit standing and blocking it. He was no longer there. So we thought, oh, it must mean it's okay to walk over there. Um, so we kind of walk around the front of the owner's house to get a view that we hadn't seen yet, and we were politely reprimanded by a security guard in a suit um, who looked exactly like Jim from The Office. And so if you picture Jim from The Office in like a tuxedo, um, that is, this guy was a spitting image, was he not? It was amazing. So we dutifully obeyed. You know, he said, you know, yeah, you're going to need to return back with the other guests in the party. And we were like, yeah, we kind of thought that might be the case. Um, So we joined the rest of the group and didn't quite, we got a a sneak peek at the view for a second. Um, But as I normally like to do, a little while later in the evening, I made friends with security guard Jim. (laughs) And I was asking him about stuff because I overheard him. He's saying, you know what, it took nine years to build the two structures on that property. Nine years. Like, Nick, that's not, that's a lot longer than it's taken you, right? How long has it taken you on your... How long did it take you to build your house? Probably a solid two years. Two years. All right. That's, and that seemed probably like an eternity for you guys. But this, this house and a little barn, which is kind of their public space, took them nine years to build. Um, all to prepare for this wedding that I had just performed. Crooked roads literally had to be straightened. Valleys had to be filled in, mountaintops had to be lowered, uneven ground had to be leveled. Nine years of preparation and hard work went into making this wedding that we had just done possible. That's a lot of construction, a lot of preparation. And so in today's text, John the Baptist quotes the prophet Isaiah in order to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. To John, some form of construction was going to be needed to get us ready. But note that the bulldozers, you know, they're not going to be required because what seems to be needed is not this a renovation of a mountain property, but a renovation of our own hearts. This is what John seems to be wanting us to get prepared. And so as we read from Luke's Gospel chapter three, verses one to six, we're going to listen for the cosmic scale of what God is up to. I'll give you a hint. Isaiah said that all people shall see the glory of the Lord. Not some. All people. Luke writes that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All people, all flesh. We just note going into this text that God is up to something enormous. Here we go. Sorry, Floyd. Next year. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. <laughs> 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 the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Just note that little sentence right there. The word of God doesn't go to the temple in Jerusalem, it goes out to the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, to John. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation the word of the Lord. And And so Luke is like painstakingly specific about exactly when this ministry of John took place. So specific, in fact, that I was forced to read all of those crazy names and places. Like Trachonitis. Doesn't that sound more like something you get antibiotics for? It's actually the name of a place. Um, You know, and of all the gospel writers, only the historian Luke takes the time to place John the Baptist in his historical context. He gives us the kind of uh, religious and political leaders of his day, from the Roman Emperor Tiberius Caesar all the way down to the local high priest Caiaphas, and it allows us to date the beginning of John's ministry to somewhere around 28 or 29. And so John was born to Elizabeth and Zechariah. Zechariah was the temple priest. Uh, His mother and his father Now see, does anyone in here get accused of this? Listen to this They were said to be righteous before God Living blamelessly according to all the commandments Anyone get accused of that? Dale? Not even Dale That tells you something, right? Like I'm looking to you two right here You're, You're the closest thing right, I don't get accused of that that often. Um, And so even though they're getting along in years, right, the angel of the Lord says to Zechariah and Elizabeth that they're going to give birth to a son. And this is what the angel said. This is amazing stuff. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is a cool prophecy. John's job, his mission, his purpose is stated before he's even born, right? It's like John had this one job to do he was to get people prepared for this cosmic, huge, giant-scaled thing that God was about to do. And Jesus, God is gonna make good on the promise to deliver them. And John the baptizer was the guy who was supposed to get everybody ready for the deliverer to come. And so John's ministry precedes Jesus. John burst onto the scene in the Judean wilderness. It actually, here's a, here's a picture of it. Uh, looks like a pleasant place to hang out, right? Yeah. It's actually one of the few things today that can be seen almost exactly like it was a couple thousand years ago. This rocky terrain, deep ravines, little vegetation. It just creates miles and miles of completely desolate land. Like, going through this land today, when I was reading and studying about it a little bit, it says you might run into a shepherd here and there, an occasional camel, and the best part, if you're lucky, Bedouin tents with satellite dishes. That's what I would (laughs) like to see if I went into that land. That would be pretty cool. But it's almost unchanged. It's the perfect place for John to escape the city. Uh, Most people were only passing through this part uh, on their way to somewhere else. It wasn't a place that people went to hang out. Uh, Dustin and Jenny would not be sipping umbrella drinks anywhere (laughs) anywhere near this place Um, but it's interesting that the people that were going there were kind of the nobodies, the people on fringes of society in our own John Baptist, right? And so the word of the Lord goes there this is one of the things that is why does the word of God go to this place and not the fancy temple in Jerusalem? Great things are about to spring up from this wilderness. And the thing that maybe interested me the most when I studied it is the idea that for first centuries, God seems to have had the entire world in mind. Isaiah said that all people, all people would come to see God's glory. And Luke quoting Isaiah tells us that all people will see the salvation of God. And it was this cosmic scale of God's mission that personally... I find to be very hopeful and very comforting. God wants people that feel distant. God wants people whose hearts are far away to be drawn near. This is one of the coolest themes that I think we see in Advent. It's John who was supposed to prepare the way for this new (coughs) radical and far-reaching thing that God was about to do. And so you think about the cities. People from the cities and towns, they're flocking to this place to hang out with John, to be baptized in repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so like the prophet Isaiah before him, John has bigger things in mind than just a literal return from exile for one particular people group, right? God's world-changing plan was almost here, and John knew that it was just around the corner. So the question that I was asking is how did John prepare people uh, to receive Jesus and how are we supposed to prepare to receive Jesus today? And so John prepared him pretty simply. He, he, He offered a bath, right? This ritual cleansing bath. John's original hearers, they would have already been familiar with some sort of baptism that symbolized this good interior scrubbing, right? And so John offered what he called the baptism for the repentance of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's a fancy way of saying that he was calling people to turn away from one thing and turn towards something else. To turn away from a life of sin and return to God. And so John's bath was calling people to come back home. To return from that of literal exile, but an exile of the heart, right? Which we can easily feel far away and distant from God. We talked a little bit about this last week. John's trying to scrub their hearts clean because he knows that if people turn away from sin and they turn to face God, that they were much less likely to miss the amazing thing that God was about to do. And so John is a call to be prepared, to receive, to see Jesus when he arrives, to make sure we don't miss Jesus when he shows up. And so last week we were reminded, the scripture said, really simple stuff last week. We were reminded to stand up and lift up our heads. For those of us that were here, why do we do that? It's simple, it's so we can see what's before us. If we sit down and we keep our head down, we can't see what's out in front of us. We can't see what's coming. And so today is a little bit different. So maybe we see ourselves as already standing up. Maybe we see ourselves as our heads are already lifted up. And now John adds something to it. He says, today we're told that we need to level the highway to remove the rock, to fill in the low ground, to raise up the low ground, to fill in the the valleys, Um, not some literal highway through the Judean wilderness, but rather this highway that leads to our hearts. John wants this road to be a straight shot, an easy road for God to travel, right? And so God is coming, but the question maybe for today that we ask ourselves is, are our hearts ready to receive Jesus? Are we really prepared? Is our heart ready to receive Christ this Christmas today? And so repentance kind of gets a bad rap, this word. Um, like when I, I think when I first hear the word, when I don't think about it, I have an image that comes to mind, and it's some street corner evangelist with a turn or burn sign, right? They used to be all over the place. Thank God there's less of them today. Um, But this is what I immediately think about uh, when I hear this word, you know, like someone yelling, turn or burn to poor, innocent passersby, hoping to scare them into faith in Jesus, which I don't know if that ever has ever worked, but there must be a reason they do it. And so what repentance is, it does mean to turn, uh, but I think the nuance is more important, that it begins with a change of mind, a decision. And it actually ends with a change of direction of one's life. And this is, I think, where John is going, taking the kind of old Hebrew concept is really to change the direction of your life. It's a 180 degree turn. A turning from one thing to another thing. A turning away from a previous way of living and a turning toward a more godly way of living. It's this turning that John seems to indicate that this is what gets us ready to receive Jesus. It reminded me of a story. Any people like great literature, like Fyodor Dostoevsky, Russian writer? All right, so Dale, actually, Dale and I taught a class on this once from the Brothers Karamazov um, on him. He's a really interesting guy, and he's my absolute favorite uh, literary writer. I, I love his stuff. And he describes a real experience, something that happened to him. And when I read this text and was talking about, you know, John's talking about this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, I I thought about this. He actually, uh, when he was 27 years old, he had this real turning point in his life. He came from the very privileged class, 19th century Russia, but his commitment was to the liberation of the oppressed. His whole life's work went to liberating the oppressed working class known as the serfs, Right? Well, this was not a good place to be <laughs> in Russia doing this. Um, like many others, he joined a re- re- this revolutionary liberation group. He was arrested in 1849 and placed in a maximum security prison. All right? These, the conditions he describes were absolutely appalling. They, they could hardly be worse. He slept on a straw bed in this small, damp room with very little light for eight months. And he just sat there for eight months questioning what was gonna happen to him as they kept him in jail. In October, after eight months, the prisoners were removed from their cells. They were led to waiting carriages. They weren't sure what was gonna happen, uh, but they were assuming the whole time that the sentence would be light. When they got out of the carriage, the prisoners were led onto a square and they were actually lined up at a gallows. The men were sentenced to be shot. They were given a cross to kiss, a chance to confess to a priest, And they were dressed in peasant shirts, hoods placed on their heads, and tied to stakes. The soldiers took aim, and this is a true story. The soldiers took aim, and they held their positions, and from out of nowhere, Dostoevsky says he heard a drum roll. It was the drum roll of the Tsar, a message from the Tsar coming in, riding on horseback, with a pardon for Dostoevsky and the fellow prisoners. They were taken back to the prison with the intention of being sent and shipped out to Siberia to work camps. And he wrote a letter to his brother, which is where this information comes from, his brother Mikhail. And he writes this, and he describes the new outlook on his life because of the pardon that he was given. These are his words. He wrote, when I look back on my past, and I think how much time I wasted on nothing, how much time has been lost in futilities, errors, laziness, incapacity to live. How little I appreciate it. How many times i sinned against my own heart and soul. Life is a gift, he wrote. Life is happiness. Every minute can be an eternity of happiness. It's a cool letter. And then he wrote this brilliant novel called The Idiot, which is kind of his Jesus character. I don't know why he calls Jesus an idiot. We'd have to take that up with him later. I don't know. Um, And he describes an execution scene that was almost exactly like the one that he experienced himself for real. And he describes the thoughts of the 27-year-old victim as he awaited death, which were certainly reflections on his own near execution. And in the book he wrote, what if I didn't have to die? This is what his change would be. I would turn, see the word? That's the word for repentance, Dos says, I would turn every minute into an age. Nothing would be wasted. Every minute would be accounted for. And it's like, when I was thinking about, this is what pardon and forgiveness does for each of us. It grants us new opportunities. It gives us new life. John the Baptist, too, he's a guy that did not want to waste any time. He was about, he had business to attend to. John encourages us to turn around. To face Jesus, to seek out the one who is already coming on the same road to meet us. And so this morning, Dale already led us through uh, claiming the promise of forgiveness. This release from past sins doesn't undo what has been done, but what it does is it unbinds us from it, it frees us from it, it releases us from its grip, it opens up a new way of living living for God's mission in the world. Ultimately, forgiveness covers our sin. And it was interesting, when I was studying the Isaiah passage, it says something weird. It said, I did not understand this, it says that the people would receive double from the Lord's hand for all their sins. That's a strange statement. Like, at first, when I read it, I was really confused. I was like, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know? Do we really what a double helping of what? Like, a double helping of grace would be a great thing. Double helping of punishment for sins would be a bad thing. And so I looked into it. I really wanted to know, what does this actually mean? And then I discovered something that changed how I thought about it. Um, I learned that the Hebrew word for double means to fold in half or fold over. And I was, like, thinking about it. I'm like, what if, I don't get it. Why is this important? And so what I did is created a little visual. This is my, like, children's message object lesson, the children are gone, right? Is that this, I think, the image that John and Isaiah are trying to convey. They're trying to give us this really simple picture that we are, we are sinners in need of God's grace. We, we all understand that. But the fold over or fold in half part is that's what happens. That's the visual image that I think John is trying to convey. That forgiveness, God's forgiveness, covers our sin. It offers us a new opportunity, new life. And I think this is the imagery that, that John was trying to go for, something that really that simple, and at first I just I had no idea. But it's moments like these moments, you know, like moments when I kind of figured out what that actually meant. That you look at God's wisdom in the scriptures is pretty it's pretty mind blowing stuff. The idea in Isaiah is not one of excessive punishment. It's actually one of excessive forgiveness. It's the opposite, right? When we deserve one thing, we mysteriously get another thing. We receive this merciful forgiveness that completely covers all of our sin. That frees us. It forgiveness of a debt, you know, for Dostoevsky, what he said it did for him is he said it gave him new life, that forgiveness changed the way he lived his life. He went on to live a completely different life. He actually became a pretty, pretty radically committed Christian man. Um, and he looks back at this moment as pivotal uh, for him because he was given uh, something that he just did not see coming. He turned his life around He realized that his past sins had been covered. And so it gives us new life as well. Uh, it helps us to be prepared to see and receive Jesus who has come, is coming, and will come again. Jesus is coming to make God near, to bring God close. In Jesus, God's kingdom is broken in, and John prepares our hearts so that Jesus can draw us unto himself. Let's pray.